This is a journey. what's going on man hey <laughs> happy well we shouldn't tell people when we're recording this but it is a popular <laughs> holiday weekend <laughs> yes that's true and it, it'll be not that holiday weekend by the time we release this but hopefully everyone is has retroactively had a good restful and relaxing holiday weekend yes indeed not, uh, and actually when we release this it will be Black Music Month. That's so right. Happy Black that is Music correct. Month. Happy Black Music Month. Happy Pride Month. Yeah. This show could go a few different ways, but actually this ties in, I think, to a degree to what we initially intended to talk about. But I feel like we should give at least a few minutes and acknowledge the passing of Tina Turner. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Legend. Yeah. I don't know what your first experience with Tina was. I mean, the single What's Love Got to Do With It is the first I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, is that true? Because I'm not as well-versed in chronology. So, Private Dancer, What's Love Got to Do With It, We Don't Need Another Hero. That era of Tina Turner, she was kind of ubiquitous. Yeah. And I just remember my mom emphasizing that Tina Turner was actually my grandmother's age and my grandmother was not nearly as cool (laughs) (laughs) in my eyes. Uh, Let me leave that there. But I mean, (laughs) could anybody's grandmother be as cool as Tina Turner? Right. Like that's a high bar. (laughs) That's true. But yeah, I mean, just iconic in so many different ways. There's been some conversation about maybe not necessarily focusing so much on the domestic abuse survivor part And Ike wasn't the only part of her story, but a survivor even beyond that in so many ways. And I think what really, what really resonates with me, particularly at this point in my life, is that when Private Dancer came out, she was 45 years old. Right. She did not really start getting major success until she was middle-aged. Right. Right. Uh, Well, I guess crossover success. Pop success. Yeah, that's fair. Because, I mean, the... Ike and Tina Review was successful. Yeah. And they had hits. It wasn't until later on that I learned about that earlier era. And she was such a a groundbreaker in so many ways during that era that if you're under a certain age, you might not even realize. Right. And you're absolutely right. The Ike and Tina Review was successful, but Private Dancer, that album and the songs from it is really what broke her into a mass audience and made her multi-platinum. For a while, I think, until Whitney came out, Private Dancer was the best-selling album by a female Black artist of all time. Oh, wow. I did not realize that. So she really set the bar. She was the first female Black artist played on MTV. Mm -hmm. She was the first Black person of any gender on the cover of Rolling Stone. Oh, wow. Yeah. I not realize that. And she just moved so many mountains. So big shout out to Tina Turner and her legacy. Yeah, and I mean, so as a dancer <laughs> and choreographer, just doing things on stage that were so electric and had never been seen before. Yeah. Everyone makes a, a big to-do over Jill Scott 
simulating fellatio on stage with a microphone. <laughs> and it's like, well, y'all don't know. Tina right. <laughs> originated that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you will go watch video of those Ike and Tina performances from the 60s and early 70s, the energy, like, yeah. I don't understand. Cocaine. <laughs> I mean, Ike was using it. I don't know about <laughs> Tina, but it was one of those things where I remember James Brown saying, or Michael, one of them, maybe both saying that they lost like seven pounds on stage a night. Yeah. And the energy from Tina and just the raw sexuality. Yeah. And the legs. Yeah. I mean, again, things that for the era were scandalous and unheard yeah. of. Yeah. So again, kudos to Tina Turner. I've been uh, definitely bumping Tina in my assortment of music the past couple of days. As you should. Yes. Which I think in a way kind of backdoors into the discussion we wanted to have today. Yeah. I fucked up. How so? Literally this morning when we were about to record, because we had talked about a few different topics and we knew it was Black Music Month and kind of deciding how we wanted to get into that. And it just occurred to me that we should have invited a musicologist friend of mine Sandy Loam, who actually just recently became the first Black transgender woman to be on CMT. Oh! First, first out Black transgender woman on Whoa, CMT. Whoa, that's big. Yeah, but as a musicologist and would really dig into what we we decided to talk about today in a way that, uh, yeah. So I'll reach out to her. Yeah, let's put a pin in that and definitely come back to Sandy at some point. Yeah. But it, our topic. <laughs> yes. I mean, how do I frame this? Ike and Tina's music was definitely funk and soul rooted, even though Ike Turner is also one of the people credited with helping invent rock and roll with Rocket 88. But Tina's solo music is a lot more nebulous, I think. And some people would say it falls more under rock yeah, than, than soul. Pop rock. Um, yeah. Which... Some people might argue makes it quote unquote less black. And really this discussion, it, it, uh, the big picture of it is what is black music? And I feel like the obvious answer to that is every music is black music. Every popular American music for music, sure. Yes, that's um, what I meant to say. And even broader than that, because American culture has such influence over worldwide cultures, extrapolate that into what you will. But if you're hearing it on the radio and you're not like some deep historian nerd searching <laughs> for the rarest of things that has been developed in isolation in whatever part of the country or world, black music has influenced whatever you're listening to today. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. And I don't know because I don't really know any young people on an intimate level. I mean, I work with some people who are in their early twenties, have peripheral knowledge of <laughs> what do they call them? Generation Z, whatever the hell it is. Yeah, Zennials or yeah, Zennials. <laughs> I I don't know if the lines that separated musical genres are as prominent as they were when I was a kid. Definitely but, not. Okay, Definitely. and I love that. Yeah, I love that. I think that's necessary. But I grew up in a time when music was very, very racialized. Oh yeah. Radio in particular. Yeah. You know, you either got play on the black stations or the white stations. Right. And very, very rarely you would find somebody that could cross over. But actually, we've had this discussion before. 
Kenny G got play on the black stations before he got play on the white stations. Kenny G, uh, yeah. Elton John had a little bit of that going on at certain points. Yeah. I mean, Kenny G was initially marketed as an R&B jazz artist. Right. His first couple of records were produced by Kashif and prominent R&B producers of the day. But as someone who listens to all types of music, and I felt this way as a kid, maybe into my early 20s, felt like the type of music that I should enjoy was policed to a certain extent. Yeah. And in my head, music is music. But I'm also like, if we started all this shit, we have every right to listen, enjoy, create in any genre or in as many genres as we want to. Absolutely. I'm not sure what your experience was like when you were growing up. All right. When you were growing up, did you primarily listen to quote unquote black music like R&B, hip hop, jazz, gospel? Primarily around the time that I got into junior high. I mean, my tastes were always eclectic to a degree, but I think I started leaning in more to like, oh, this is supposed to be white music and I don't care because it jams to me, right? What was the gateway drug for that? Nirvana, Green Day, that stuff. Talking Heads was a consistent presence, but Talking Heads leaned into the black yeah, side. Talking Heads of, is funky. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, and we've got an episode coming up on the Talking Heads for the re-release of Stop Making Sense, so we can get into that. But mm-hmm. they said they took direct influence from Fela Kuti and Polyrhythms, African drumming, and they got play on black radio. Like, right. <laughs> so right. that kind of stuff was always around. But yeah, junior high and the grunge alt rock era was when I really was like, but there's, and that was also part of my outsider always rooting for the underdog counterculture that it spoke to me on that level. So mm-hmm. from there, I got into like, the history of punk rock and all of that stuff. So yeah. Did, did you ever encounter? I don't know if resistance is the right word. Did you encounter flack, whether from family or friends, about listening to kinds of music that were not stereotypically assigned for you to listen to? I mean, there would be comments sometimes, but I also was in a pretty integrated neighborhood at that point. My school was, I'd say, almost 50-50 racial mix, right? Not 50-50, but pretty balanced racial mix, makeup. So if someone made comments, it's like, all right, well, I'm just going to go hang out on this side of the hallway and whatever. (laughs) Right. And there were enough other people who were also into the same shit. Like, I remember in some class, we started singing uh, Green Day and the whole class joined in to the sing-along. And I just kind of gravitated to the people who were down with the same shit I was down with. And I found them across the broad spectrum of people. So good music is good music. Right. Yeah, I I think my experience is a little different from yours. That's fair. Whereas I, I grew up, for the most part, in all-Black neighborhood. And in a family that, I like, they weren't closed-minded to music. My grandmother listened to country music. Right. Like, old-time, like Patsy Cline-type country music. Yeah. And I think she had appreciation for all types of music, but my more Americanized relatives, particularly my mom, 
I mean, I'd play Madonna and she'd be like, turn that shit off. For a lot of people, Madonna is as black as you can get without actually being black. <laughs> so it was really interesting. And it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that I enjoyed rock music. I remember mm. uh, getting my first job in 1991 and ordering a bunch of tapes from Columbia House. And Good old BMG. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 10 for a 12 for a penny. <laughs> And uh, one of the tapes I bought was Out of Time by R.E.M. because our, Losing My Religion was super popular at the yeah. time. And I remember playing that tape and my folks looking at me like, what the hell is this stuff? <laughs> I think it's part of me growing up, A, with all of these TV shows that uh, were not R&B or hip-hop specific. I mean, hip-hop was still kind of a thing still on the rise in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. I didn't have MTV or any of those channels, but the local video stations, they'd play men at work and duran duran right, and all right. that stuff so i grew up with a, a fairly panoramic view of what good music was and it took me probably until i was like a late teenager to really find other black people who were into different kinds of music like i discovered blur through a black dude that i was in high school with nice. like my senior year in high school and even from there working in retail i worked in the bronx for most of my time in retail and there was an education piece to say, yeah, black and brown people listen to Marilyn Manson. Black and brown people <laughs> yeah. listen to Creed. And for me, once I took over a little bit of the management and started bringing more of that product in, all of a sudden the numbers went up. Oh. And it was like a discovery thing because I think on all sides, people are a little reductive when it comes to thinking about what type of music is enjoyed by everybody. I want to dig into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. what was the catalyst? So were people coming in asking for more of it, which then led you to stocking more of it? Or did you just say, I'm going to try this and see what happens? It was really me, A, knowing what I was listening to, B, reading Spin and Rolling Stone mm -hmm. and all these other magazines and getting a vibe on what was coming up. And uh, occasionally someone would come in and ask. But I mean, I, I started working in the Bronx in 96. and our buyers who were centralized and were all white mm. guys, Fiona Apple was popping around that time. And I had to beg them to bring us copies of Fiona Apple, that sublime record that was really popping at the time. I had to ask them to bring that in. It's funny because I specifically remember an episode of Rap City with Joe Claire, where he <laughs> talked about being into Fiona Apple. He was like, I host Rap City. It came up in conversation with somebody he was interviewing. He was like, yo, this criminal's joint, this is jamming. And for me, that was validating because, like, I watch Rhapsody every day. Right. And, yeah, you're into that, too. We have broader taste. I think the other part for me is my hometown had a very popular KISS FM station, mm -hmm. which, uh, for those who haven't worked in radio, is what they would call churbin. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the churbin genre, which was... I haven't heard of that term in a long time, man. Well, how do we officially define this for people who don't know? Churbin... It's a portmanteau, right? It's a CHR, which is contemporary hit radio, and urban. So it's like it's R and B and R and B inflected pop music. Yeah. So I take it back to like the late nineties or early two thousands. Like hear Genuine, and then you hear like Diddy, and then you hear like Faith Evans, and then you'd hear Backstreet Boys song. Right. Yeah. So I think that being just kind of in the zeitgeist of my hometown. Also, because there was like the AM gospel station, but we didn't have a K-Day. We didn't have a Power 105. We didn't have a whole lot of strictly Black radio. And I think that was the demographics of Toledo, Ohio, 
just kind of doing what it do. Right, right. <laughs> I'm blessed that I spent most of my childhood in New York City, where in the days before radio consolidation, yeah, before Clinton signed that act that basically gave Clear Channel and those big guns basically the ownership of every radio station in America. (laughs) But when PDs and DJs really had control over what was on the playlist, and one of my biggest inspirations is this dude, Frankie Crocker. And Frankie Crocker was a DJ at WBLS in New York City in the late 70s and early 80s. I think he got fired over some payola shit and then came back in the late 80s and early 90s. But he really opened the door to what black radio could be because he would play Stevie Wonder and he would play Michael Jackson. He would play the popular R&B artists of the day, but he would play fusion. He would play reggae, which in America, everybody's like, Sean Paul, great now. (laughs) But I think before Shaba broke through in the early 90s, no one was playing reggae even on black stations. Because there was a freestyle scene in New York, wasn't there? Right. And freestyle was really like Hot 97 music at the time, before Hot 97 became a hip-hop station. But Frankie Crocker would play The Clash. He would play Talking Heads. First time I heard Culture Club was on WBLS. Oh wow! He'd play Led Zeppelin. He would play music that, again, expanded the parameters of what people assumed Black music was. Yeah. And he really was a huge influence on just the way that I interpret music the way that I listen to music, because it was just like, good music is good music. I'll yeah. play a country song. Right. Yeah. And Lady by Kenny Rogers was like, black folks of a certain age, like that. that's a hit record. Islands in the yeah. Stream, that's a huge record. Like, it feels like at some point that contracted, and now it's wider scope again. Yeah. Um, I mean, while we're here, I also got to give a shout out to WJLB out of Detroit, because we did get that signal in Toledo. That was Electrifying Mojo, if I yeah, remember yeah, correctly. Yeah. Bushman and a lot of Detroit techno. and Remember, I lived music. in Detroit for a couple of years, so oh. I got WJLB for a couple of years. Yeah, and it's interesting because my cousin is also very eclectic in his music taste. And I remember he and I were going through a Jimi Hendrix phase and asking his mom, my aunt, oh, you were the primary age range when this was hitting and she was like yeah that was white music to me i just didn't really pay attention to jimmy at that point in time and a lot of people don't realize but even parliament sly and the family stone they were getting most of their spins on white radio and thus who was going to their shows right it wasn't until i don't know if i want to say black folks reclaimed them because it was never like they were outcast they were always connected but those lines between black people listen to this, white folks listen to this, it, it caused that dynamic. So, right. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to Maggot Brain, you listen to those oh, yeah. early Funkadelic albums, that shit is like rock with a capital R and a capital oh, K. Yeah. There's nothing really R&B-based about any of those early records. Yeah, Eddie um, Hazel was one of yeah. the guitar greats. Yeah, the guitar greats of all time. How much is Prince responsible for the breaking down of that? Because Prince was playing rock. Right. For those who don't know, Eddie Hazel was a direct influence on Prince. If you listen to some of those old Eddie Hazel records and then play Prince back to back, you're like, oh, that's where that comes from. Yeah. So That's a good question. How much was Prince responsible? I think to an extent, because he was really, in the 80s, the only 
like high level major black rock artists. And Princeton Revolution was definitely a reincarnation of Sly and the Family Stone, where right. it was a mixed race band, a mixed gender band. The music couldn't necessarily be classified. It kind of digs at me sometimes when I go on streaming platforms and I see Prince classified as R&B because Prince yeah. made R&B music. Prince was capable of making R&B songs, but Prince was not an R&B artist. Right. Like, it's funny. Prince said about U2 once. He was like, I can make their record, but they can't make Housequake. Right, right. So for a lot of people, Prince was the most visible Black artist making rock music at that time. I mean, there were plenty of others. I mean, Michael has said he would always try to have at least one rock song on each album. Right. But that wasn't like his pocket, so to speak. Right. And also, I think the difference, I mean, one main difference between the two is that Prince was playing the guitar. For everybody who sees quote unquote rock music as a white boy with a guitar, Prince was like, all right, now I'm a black dude with a guitar. What do you call this shit? <laughs> right. So Prince was responsible to a certain extent. But thinking back to when I was growing up, I didn't see Prince as R&B or rock. I saw Prince as Prince. Yeah, I think most people do. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, the real breakthrough was Living Color. Okay. Before I realized Slash was black. Right. <laughs> Living Color and Fishbone and Lenny all came out at about the same time. Popular yeah, I, around the same time. I forget Lenny has been around that long. Yeah, man. In fact, I was watching Euphoria last season and they had the flashback scene that was supposed to be like, late 80s early 90s and they were playing Lenny. i had to look up when did that song actually come <laughs> out because <laughs> it felt so jarring right <laughs> that's what happens when you've looked the same for the last 35 years man listen <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i i think i told this story on an earlier episode i was watching video music box and they played culture personality and I was like, yo, what is this? Because it wasn't commercial rock, right? Or it wasn't whatever Prince was. It, hard yeah, rock. It was hard rock. Yeah. And prior to my 12 or 13-year-old self experiencing Living Color, that music to me was Def Leppard, Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi. There weren't right. black faces. And again, like, I didn't know that Slash was a black guy at the time. Right. And I don't know that he was particularly forward promoting that yeah and also at the time guns and roses had the reputation of being a racist band because there was that song one in a million where axel was talking about like niggas and faggots or whatever the hell he, he said in that song get out yeah. of my way or some shit like that so there was all he, also, that. he also used to wear the nwa cap. right yeah i mean <laughs> we contain multitudes right uh, but uh living color was like four black dudes and vernon had and Corey had dreads and yeah will and muzz had like flat tops and they looked like dudes on the corner you look like dudes on the block they came from my neighborhood yeah i mean vernon reed literally comes from my neighborhood <laughs> he graduated from the same high school wow uh, yeah shout out brooklyn tech but uh living color really kind of broke the door down for me being like oh like this is valid and yeah. they're as good if not better than everybody else yeah definitely i'm assuming you discovered bad brains after that i was like 18 or 19 when i discovered bad brains i gotta give a shout out to my dude harry rollins who was my supervisor at Tower Records, later my roommate. Okay. Uh, he's a, a roadie today. Dark-skinned black dude, had red dreads, played drums, and was the first, like, punk rock black dude I ever met. Wow. 
and he turned me on to Bad Brains. Okay. So, and then also, the Dead Kennedys original drummer was a black guy as well. Right. right. But again, unless you were in those subcultures, they weren't getting a lot of radio airplay. Um, right. Within the past few years, they've done the documentary about a band called Fear or a mm -hmm. band named Fear. Mm -hmm. So they were around. And again, all of this stuff stems from gospel and the blues and the metamorphosis of genres that all stems from those roots. I mean, August, we've got the 50th anniversary of hip hop, pretty much any turntable based sample based dance music, EDM owes direct lineage to hip hop. And that didn't happen without people plugging into the street corner, <laughs> like street light in the Bronx. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, EDM is 21st century disco. Right. Yeah. And disco was started primarily by people who were black or brown or gay or all three. Yeah. It all <laughs> kind of goes back to that. And now where you're seeing things become a bit more diverse is in the country space. Yeah, so let's get into that because the banjo is an African instrument. Okay. A lot of people don't realize that. You schooled um, me today. Yeah, I actually found this out recently. So country and Western used to actually be two separate genres. Okay. And the distinction, Western music was like a regional music. And they're both kind of a folk type. It's hard to separate because they're so enmeshed now, but Western was specific to geographic regions and country was more encompassed any folk movie. Though they used to have separate spaces for each of these things. And then eventually Western got folded into country Okay, and obviously cross-pollination and all of that, but they picked up banjo picking from black musicians. The harp is also an African instrument. Historically, these things originate from the continent of Africa. And now today we associate harps and banjos with a certain type of music that is not associated with black people primarily. Right. That but is often associated with people who hate black people. Strangely exactly. Enough. Exactly. Yeah. And we can link to some of this stuff in the show notes for people who want to dig deeper into that. But when yeah. we say, all music comes from black music. That's not rhetoric. <laughs> no, it's real. And I actually think Lenny attribute this quote to him, and I hope I'm right. He was basically like, every music comes from a slave singing in a field somewhere. Mm. But now country music is certainly becoming a bit more diverse because you've got, although he's problematic lately, Jimmy Allen, you've got Kane Brown, you've got Carolina Chocolate Drops operating more in the Americana space, and Mickey Guyton who had a song called Black Like Me that was really popular. So, I mean, I would not force anybody to listen to a country station at any point <laughs> in 2020. At, at least not this year. <laughs> yeah. But so much of what modern country music is right now is hip hop production. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that, quite frankly. Yeah. It's a brain fuck, right? It shouldn't be because I don't, we are... I don't want the chocolate in my peanut butter, man. Right. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be a brain fuck because what it is is white people taking cool shit that they 
see in black culture and adapting it without bringing the black people along and often working at yeah. cross purposes with yeah. black folks. I mean, there I, is a way that on paper I could see elements go, oh, if you put this together, that could work and I'd be into it. But I think it's tainted by a, the, the racial dynamic that comes into play with how it's sold and packaged. And then also, I think I just have flashbacks of like, LL Cool J and Brad uh, Oh, <laughs> accidental racist. I think that just kind of like we could have done something here, and you guys fucked it, it up. <laughs> it was well intentioned, poorly executed. But interestingly enough, and I want to say I discussed this with you in the past as well. Maybe it was somebody else. One person who I feel doesn't get credit for really being at the forefront of merging these two sounds that really doesn't get mentioned by anybody anymore is Nelly. Yeah, that's fair. That's true. I mean, I could see someone sampleable country riffs that right. you throw a breakbeat behind it. Like, okay, that works. Right. That's not what they're doing on no. modern country radio right now. <laughs> no, it's these very paint by numbers songs about tractors and beer right. and all that shit with a click track in the background. And yeah. that's Bone Thug slash R. Kelly cadence <laughs> where you're singing and rapping. Or actually, Beyonce, I think, deserves credit for that, too. This sort of very clipped, staccato kind of fast singing. Yeah, yeah. But that's a lot of it now. Yeah. But I'm not comfortable with these racist white boys basically stealing our music. And you could tie that back. It's been happening since the beginning of popular American music. But I also feel like as much as people criticize Elvis and the Stones and the Beatles or whoever or Led Zeppelin... They have not been shy about acknowledging it from. I think we've already put to bed years ago the Elvis being racist old wives tale. Because yeah. uh, little Richard has proclaimed that he was friends with Elvis. James Brown said he was friends with Elvis. Doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't racist. But, and even like, Sissy Houston, we'll give a, a example of somebody who's still alive, yeah. um, worked for Elvis and said that he always looked out for her. So also, there's the man and there's the machine, right? Right. So right. even when he's acknowledging and giving respect on a personal level, the machine does something with it that's out of his control. Right. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from as well. Right. And people didn't have the verbiage to express it in the 50s and 60s the way that people can express it in 2023. Right. He was feeding into a machine that was racist and that doesn't necessarily mean that he himself right so you're an emo dude <laughs> am i i mean you're going to thrice shows and all that stuff yes, yes and that's a bridge that i don't know that i will ever cross fair enough but when you go to these shows what is the representation like it depends on where i'm going to the show hmm. that's you know, real. so there is new zealand ardor I don't know why that sounds familiar, but I'm just going to say no. They're a black metal band and the lead singer, guitarist, actually he was a solo act and he has a couple other bands. I think Bird, is it, what's the name of this other, other project? Anyway, the whole way Zealand Arter got started, he was on some message boards and he was like, I'm a musician, I'm creative, I want to blend genres, people make suggestions of two different genres that you want me to try to blend. And he's a black guy who lives in Sweden. I think his mom's from New York, so he's got roots. 
here in America as well. And some asshole was like, why don't you blend black metal and nigger music? Oh, Jesus Christ. Right. Trying to be funny. Right. And he was like, bet. And he went and took like old Negro spiritual field music and blended it with heavy black metal. (laughs) Hell yeah. And it was like, boom, here's the album. And people were like, whoa, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and he's been touring for four albums worth of kind. That's actually how I met Sandy at a Zealand Ardor show. Wow. <laughs> so I've been to two of their shows in New York. And they were headlining one show. And they had a couple other Swedish metal bands that came along with them. So I don't know what the mix was of who was here, there for who. Sure. And I remember there were some black metalheads in the crowd clearly and there was this one group of people it was clearly a situation where somebody's sister was a big fan and either mom said you have to take brother as a chaperone but it was one of those things where like, she was so into it and knew all the words and was screaming and yelling and i don't know the relationship between these people but there was another slightly older woman with them and actually, I don't know if any of these people were actually over 18, but she was like, okay, I'm kind of vibing, tap my foot to this, but not what I'm usually into. And homeboy, it was arms crossed the entire time. <laughs> I, Am I here? Right. <laughs> I, I don't get this at all. The other show I saw them at was they were opening for a Mastodon, which are like huge bands I, in, oh, yeah. in that genre. I was so, like, I know who they are. And then I'm like, wait, well, other people listening might right. not. Right. People are listening to us, Mike. Yes, yes, um, true. So if I'm assuming the majority of fans there were there for the big bands who have been around for 20, 30 years at this point. Wow, that feels weird to say out loud. Mm. Uh, but it was one of those scenes where I could clearly see Zealand Arter gaining fans. People were like, whoa, what is this? Okay, who and Sandy and I had on t-shirts and the group we were with. So people were actually walking over like, what? Tell me about them. What's going on? So that's been really cool to see. And again, just kind of breaking down genres. I would go to punk rock shows in Ohio and it would be me and maybe one other black woman the entirety of the venue, right? When I lived in Georgia, I think in Georgia, people just kind of get assimilated through exposure. So Oddly enough, I saw more diverse crowds at some shows in Georgia than I did that <laughs> in Ohio. Surprise me. Yeah. In Florida as well. I went to a college in Florida, which is, I think the climate was a little different back then. And in LA, it's similar to New York. Everything's just so eclectic and diverse. Actually, this is a bit of a tangent, so maybe we circle back around to this DJing open format parties. I used to go to a lot of those in LA. And you talk about diversity of audience everybody was there. It's like, okay, this might be rooted in hip hop and R&B because it's turntable and and backbeat based, but they're playing some of everything and some of everybody is there. Right. So let's come back to that. Like the whole, how open format became a thing and what, what's like today. As you were talking, I'm thinking back to my own experience and living in Boston for the amount of time that I did and actually noticing a difference in the racial makeup of shows there versus in new york in new york you can walk into a metal show or a punk show and you're going to see a fairly diverse array of people yeah whereas in boston everybody was very white 
(laughs) And it is also in some ways a reflection of the genetic makeup of Boston, period. Right. And not just pure numbers, but just the segregation of the diverse demographics that are there. It's like, okay, there's black people here, but they don't come to this side of town. (laughs) Absolutely. I, I do think that things are changing. I think there are people out there that they're trying to raise the flag or keep the flag high for commercial radio as an actual thing, but I don't know that anybody really plays radio anymore. Yeah. So as playlisting becomes more of a thing and social media becomes more of a thing, uh, I think you're seeing a much more diverse array of people listening to different kinds of music over the last 10, 15 years. And I think also black culture has taken a huge leap just in general because I, I think it's only recently that the world at large has really come to terms with the fact that blackness is not just one thing, that blackness yeah. is as diverse as everything else, whether it's Ah Future or Willow Smith or all of these uh, A-list pop culture people yeah. being unapologetically different. And I'm not even going to say being accepted, but creating their own lane yeah, I think that's widened the scale of who can do what, who is allowed to do what, who is accepted for doing what. Well, and we should also circle back to the discussion around cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation, appropriation. or cultural cross-pollination even. Right. But outside of the music, I think the fashion plays a part in this too, right? Whereas... 15, 20 years ago, I'm wearing a Sonic Youth t-shirt and people are like, oh, black guy wearing a Sonic Youth t-shirt, right? And now everybody's been shopping at Hot Topic. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I have seen DMC from Run DMC, Daryl McDaniels, in the past 10 years, he's either wearing a Doors t-shirt or Rolling Stones t-shirt or ACDC. some classic rock band yeah. trying to show, hey, like, I'm known for this, but I can do this too, right? Well, when your biggest hit was an Aerosmith song. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. And actually, uh, it just occurred to me that we could have had Lola on this show too. Oh, yeah. Shoot. We need to do a roundtable. Yeah. Maybe we could do two shows for her. Need to get into the new metal and I'm... Kid rock of it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that kind of goes back to appropriation at some point. I mean, that's certainly a trigger word and is used in some spaces and in reference to some people who maybe don't deserve that. And I apologize to everybody. I'm a Justin Timberlake apologist, but uh, (laughs) Peter Rock didn't really show his ass until somewhat recently. But yeah, I guess new metal was between like Fred Durst and Kid Rock and Marilyn Manson and Korn, like using this vague involvement with hip hop culture. I mean, there was a Slipknot has a DJ as part of the group. You listen to Slipknot, it's like, where is the DJ? (laughs) There's some slight wiki wiki in the course, but what's going on here? And on one hand, it's like, okay, if you were born after a certain year, you are undoubtedly influenced by hip hop. There's no way around it. But on the flip side of it, what are your motives? Right. Yeah. Or actually, trip hop as well, which is a very European centric genre. But when I think of trip hop, I think of it coming from a more organic space. Right. right. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Right. Yeah. Because Massive Attack, Soul to Soul, Nina Cherry, 
Porter's Head, they all kind of came from the same scene. Yeah. Which was a very integrated scene. Bristol. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so appropriation actually never really crossed my mind when thinking of, of. But that's the difference. So you listen to Porter's Head records and what Adrian Utley is doing as a turntablist. He's not doing what everybody else is doing. Right. He's actually innovating in a way where it's like, oh, you can do that too. Right. And making it sound good. I think it was just kind of fashionable to have a DJ on stage for a lot of these American new metal acts. And it's not like, I like, you can say Jermaine. I I was going to (laughs) say, am I going to say some or a lot? I don't know where the line is. (laughs) I like that stuff. Some of it. Yeah. I mean, there's some of it. I do not want to be associated with, right. I proudly am a huge Deftones fan. Right. That is not a guilty pleasure for me. Like I will stand up and die on that hill. And I don't know that Deftones are particularly problematic. Right. Maybe not so much for P.O.D. Papa Roach. (laughs) I don't know. And even then, I owned a Papa Roach album. Right. In hindsight, I don't know if I'd listen to it today. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, look, I owned Limp Bizkit Records. I had Devil Without a Cause by Kid Rock. It was just, I knew less then. Right. And Fred Durst, I always got kind of like Vibes from hell. Desperation vibes. <laughs> but Kid Rock, D Nice co signed Kid Rock. Yeah. Well, like Kid uh, Rock was. Premier and Method Man co signed yeah. Brisket. So. Right. But <laughs> before Kid Rock blew up, like, he was on Jive. Right. And yeah, I think his first record was produced by D Nice. And it's mm-hmm. funny because D Nice posted something a couple weeks ago about being really disappointed, He's former gone. friend of his. Yeah. And he didn't say who it was, but obviously you put two and two together and it's pretty easy yeah. to figure out. I distinctly remember in college when, so we talked before about how the labels had their specialty or their sound and their vibe. Mm -hmm. And at some point, so remember Doc's the name 2000 Mm -hmm. with Redman and he had the big Redman puppet that would show up in videos and the album cover was cartoon character. Cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. There was some commercial and I've been scouring YouTube to find this. Because I remember seeing that red man puppet in a Sum 41 video or commercial or something. And at the time it stood out to me because I was like, why do they have the red man puppet? And I think it was like they found it in an old prop closet somewhere <laughs> and didn't realize what it was. You can't find it. I've been looking for like months, <laughs> but it exists somewhere. I'm lost. <laughs> came up because I haven't thought about some 41 in 20 years but <laughs> they came up that they were breaking up and I was like oh I remember they had something with Redman weird yeah I mean Redman did a song with the offspring right so even somebody as hardcore hip hop as that is like yeah I can do this yeah Q-Tip did a record with Corn. yeah the John Davis, Jonathan Davis connection, because John right, Davis yeah. is Q-Tip's real name. JD. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of those crossovers were rooted in finances at the time. But also, oh, yeah, again, sure. there was an audience that had a big overlap. Hip-hop and hard rock were both macho dude aggressive music. Right. And I at was a certain the point, appropriate age to fall into that. Right. <laughs> so it made sense from a commercial perspective to do that sort of stuff. It's funny because what I was thinking about was how every alternative rock band in the 90s had one black guy. Yeah, yeah. Spin Doctors, Hootie and the Blowfish, Sugar Ray. (laughs) Incubus. 
Incubus, Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. And then Dave Matthews Band, which flipped it, and it was like one white guy in an all-black <laughs> band. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. But yeah, it, it's all super, super interesting to me. And again, being someone in my mid to late 40s now, I see, or at least the impression that I get is that those barriers are kind of going away. But yeah. it still bothers me. I was on Apple Music yesterday, just kind of checking the new releases and stuff, yeah. and saw Arlo Parks has an album that came out yesterday. Arlo Parks is one of my favorite singer-songwriters. She's British. She's fantastic. She's a queer black woman. She's amazing. You're um, dating the recording. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, oh, well. It came out recently. Not yesterday. Recently. But the classification was R&B. And I'm like, she's not R&B. Yeah. I mean, there's blues, but there ain't really rhythm. If she's R&B, then what the hell is is Phoebe Bridgers? And she has a song with Phoebe Bridgers on her album. So that's the thing. A lot of this classification is That's one of the big things that people have complained about with the Grammys. It's like, why am I being nominated in this category versus that category? Just because you're lumping all of us. Like the whole Chris Brown, Robert Glasper thing. Why are they in the same category? They are two very different kinds of music. Right. Uh, but both R&B based. That's fair. So there's an old article in Vibe. This is from when I was in high school, but I remember it stuck out to me and I remember it reading. DJ Shadow used to go into record stores because he was a crate digger and he would find his album classified in all these weird categories because, I mean, nobody knew what to do with him when right. he first came out. He was like, no. I belong in the hip-hop section. What are you doing? You used to get into it with the record store owners over this. And the labels are for other people, right? Right. Humans feel a need to classify stuff. And as you said, the younger generations are less and less concerned with that. Either I like it or I don't. Don't like it. Exactly. As it should be. Because at the end of the day, music is music. And to me, it's either good music or there's bad music. And that's subjective. And that can bring us back to the open format thing. So open format DJing is all the rage now or what everybody wants to call themselves. We used to just call that a hip hop DJ because hip hop is sample based music. Right. And comes from blending all of those genres together. You go to one of the old parties in the Bronx and there's a disco record, which blends into a funk record, which blends into hard rock record. And they're just cut as long as there's a break beat there. Right. It's whatever gets the dancers off. What is the Mexican by Babe Mm -hmm. Ruth? Babe Ruth. That is considered a foundational hip hop record. There is no actual hip hop in that song. Right. (laughs) Right. But it was played at all the hip hop parties because the B-boys would get down to it. Right. Or what's the Idris Muhammad? What's the song that everybody plays from him? He's a jazz drummer. Right. And that is considered foundational hip hop classic track. Right. But there's no rapping no sampling in that song it's a jazz record that just fit the vibe of the parties right so i love open format djing and and my favorite open format djs admit yeah we're just doing hip-hop and yeah you might hear us play the gambler by kenny loggins but it fit the vibe so i threw it in there Different Kenny. Kenny Rogers. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Danger zone. <laughs> but hey, I might throw that in there too. Right. Like, right. So. <laughs> yeah, man. I haven't really been to a lot of events that had such an eclectic array of music being played. But I remember the one time I went to see Questlove DJ. Yeah. And 
aside from the fact that he didn't play any more than like 90 seconds of, of any Anything. song, right? <laughs> just the things he jumped from, he played everything from Miles Davis to Nirvana yeah. to Jeezy or whatever hip hop was popular at the time. And it all fit. Yeah. And people were dancing to everything. And that's where I want to live. That's kind of what I try to do with my show. Like, even though it's R&B and hip hop is like a bed. Yeah. I'm not going to be a, a slave to a particular kind of music. I'll play what I like. And if that happens to be Pat Benatar or Guns N' Roses or Dave Matthews Band, or I'm just trying to think of something like way off center. Uh, it's my show. It's my music. And I mean, you can either buy in or not buy in. You know? I mean, we can save this for our Hip Hop 50 episode if we do one but i feel like we should yeah definitely <laughs> hip-hop and r&b is a is a great bed to start from because hip-hop is influenced by so many other so many. things right i know lp from i just say lp but i guess nowadays i have to say lp from run the jewels run the jewels <laughs> but back in the day before run the jewels was a thing he talked about how some of the blanding of hip-hop was because when hip-hop started out producers were pulling from everywhere and at a certain point hip-hop producers started being cannibalistic and only listening to hip-hop so if you're only listening to hip-hop you're not pulling from so many different places so it all started to sound very very much the same right and very bland and it was one of the old head rants that we tend to go on from time <laughs> to time but Things were so much better in the old days. Right. <laughs> right. What are these kids doing? Get off my lawn. Yeah. I mean, but I get it. When people could get away with sampling kind of wantonly, yeah. it was cool to go back and try to discover what records they were using. And those records came from such a wide array of sources, whether it was jazz records or funk records or rock records or old soul records, whatever even up to Kanye, he sampled King Crimson. Yeah. So I, I think that hip hop has certainly played a huge part in breaking down barriers, but even from the foundational aspects of it, it was a music that included all musics. It was right. sourced music from other musics. So yeah. by nature of it being compiled from other types of music, that gives it genreless appeal almost. So let's come back around. Where do you draw the line between appropriation, appreciation, and what is just natural cross-pollination of cultures that's going to occur organically? That's so hard to answer. <laughs> I think different people are going to draw the line differently. Right. Personally, I think it's all contextual. I think two people doing the exact same thing, one could be considered appropriation, another one might not be. Right. Even though they're doing the exact same thing, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Right. And I think for me, I'm just going to use this as an example, like, I don't personally get up in arms when I see a white boy in dreads, but I do get upset when the white boy in dreads can get the job mm. and I can't. Right. Right. I, so, that specific example is really interesting to me because as someone whose direct lineage is to the Caribbean, 
Uh, I have issues with black Americans wearing dreads. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, well, again, that appropriating within black space. Right. 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 Because hopefully this is a thing of the past, but I remember growing up and kids were calling each other African booty scratcher and right. making fun of Haitians and making fun of the way that Jamaicans talked and all this other stuff. So it is about context. And I agree with what you said. And I think that the world is so vast. I think that the word appropriation gets used often as like it gets weaponized, I think, to some extent. I think back to like when Bruno Mars won all those Grammys and they were like, well, he's a cultural appropriator. And I'm like, Bruno Mars is Puerto Rican. Right. Bruno Mars is a brown person. This is his music as much as it is anybody else's. So that feels like such like an off base thing to criticize that particular person of. But there are other pop culture cases. You think of any Kardashian. Right. Uh, I don't know. There are lots of uh, there are lots of examples. But again, you don't necessarily know what's in somebody's heart. You don't necessarily right. know what somebody's intention is. So you can speculate that they might be appropriating, but you can't say definitively who's appropriating what. Right. Definitely not on site. So if I go to a Jewish funeral or wedding ceremony, maybe I put on a yarmulke out of respect. Right. And then I walk out of that funeral home or church or, or synagogue or whatever. And I walk to the corner and somebody sees me wearing it and they look at me and they're like, what the fuck is this guy doing? They don't know context or anything. Right. Um, they also don't know if you might be Jewish. Right. Exactly. I mean, maybe if I'm eating something not kosher or whatever. So context is so important. And, and music and food are where this becomes even more nebulous because again, that's natural cross-pollination. Right. Food is meant to be blended and experimented with. And again, I don't have an issue with the old Italian lady making tamales, but then when she's selling them and the Mexican place around the corner has to shut down because everybody's going to the Italian woman, then I got that's, an issue with it. Right. That's right? where the issue comes in. I mean, we all influence one another and particularly nowadays, none of us grows up inside a vacuum. Yeah. Particularly in New York, not to use the tired melting pot cliche, but yeah. so much of the way that we speak, the way that we interact with people, the food we eat is multicultural. And I don't know, there are definitely actions and people that I feel a certain way about. Like the fact that black queer vernacular has become... <laughs> sort of the way that people talk on a yes. basis. Yes. <laughs> that rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Yeah. Particularly at a time when queer people are under Dealing attack. Persecution, yeah. Right. But also I realize some of it is we're all sponges. And also we don't know the context that somebody grew up in. Right. Like there's plenty of white kids I grew up in my neighborhood that just hung out with us. So when they're hanging out with us and they talk a certain way or throw out certain references, we don't think anything of it because you're from the neighborhood. Right. But take them out of that context and it's like, yo, <laughs> what's going on here, right? Someone who doesn't know them would be like, yo, what's up with this person? So actually I, I was at a funeral last year and it was for someone who was from the islands and there was this white guy there that had this thick patois come from around the corner yo what <laughs> and i realized that's because he knew the deceased from way back right. and came from the same 
island or, or lived there anyway, or grew up there, I should say. But we were having the funeral in America. Right. And out of context, again, it's we weird. were in a room full of people. So it's like, okay, I can guess what the background is here. Right. But again, take them around the corner to pick up something from the corner store. And it's like, who is this white boy? Right. <laughs> Why is he talking like this? Right. Yeah. And my friend Blake, who I think you've met a couple of times, Blake's mom's Jamaican. Mm, Blake is yeah. white as fuck. Yeah. But he throws out the patois every once in a while. And like, if you don't know, then you, you are like, who is this square looking white dude? <laughs> but also, like, he's more West Indian than I am. Right. So you really got to think about context. And I, we're so predisposed to making snap judgments. Yeah. People don't stop and think about stuff like this. Well, what else do you want to touch on? I feel like we've touched on a lot of things. I'm excited to have uh, more conversations, uh, bring some more folks in. We came up with two additional show ideas just in the hour and change that we've done this one. <laughs> Absolutely. Send your, your listener letters, your strongly worded, you got that wrong, right? to our email account, journeyintosound at gmail.com. That's yep. journey, the letter N, the number two, at g and sound at <laughs> gmail.com. <laughs> Uh, we should give shout outs to our last couple of guests, Woody Black and Ali. And, yes. Uh, yes uh, yeah. And we know what we're going to be talking about next month. Well, we might even do another June show. So, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. We might surprise y'all. Cool. <laughs> All right, y'all. Happy Black Music Month. Happy Black Music Month. Indeed. See you next time.